Hello, my name is Ryan Short, and I'm a student project manager at the Clark Forum for Contemporary Issues at Davidson College. I'm joined by Associate Professor Andrew Wolf, and Andrew Wolf is an Associate Professor of Political Science and International Studies at Davidson College. Most recently, Wolf was an Associate Fellow at Johns Hopkins University School of Inter Advanced International Studies, Europe and Bologna, Italy, and was a Fulbright NATO Security Studies Scholar hosted by the College of Europe in Bruges, Belgium. Um, his primary research interests are NATO enlargement, European security studies, and American foreign policy. Thank you for joining me today. Of course. Okay, so the first question, why do you think the American people have such a disconnect from war, and where do you think this disconnect stems from? Uh, a lot of reasons for the disconnect. Number one, getting rid of the draft, okay. which happened in the 1970s after Vietnam, after the Vietnam War basically made a, an actual disconnect where the majority of the population didn't serve in the military uh, and therefore over time they're less relatives, they're less cousins and family members that have served in the military. Okay, so that's number one. That creates a disconnect. Number two, wars have been couched in a way that aren't war. Does that make sense? They've been couched as peacekeeping, uh, interventions, counterterrorism strikes, that type of thing. And particularly with since 9-11 and the global war on terror, it's not always distinct if we're at war or who we're fighting or where we're fighting, etc. Et so the fuzziness about war makes it makes it more of a disconnect, right? Yeah. I think in those minds. Those are probably the two biggest factors. I'd say there's also another factor in the fact that... Um, the U.S. way of warfight is called high-tech, which m makes it more akin to a video game, right? There, there actually are people fighting um, and navigating drones from Nevada, right, or different drone stations. And these are being flown and operated in places like Pakistan, Yemen, Syria. And it, it's it, it, it used to be the case when you fought a war, you were drafted and you were put in... And it was much more personal, yeah. right, in your face. Now it's it's technological and pushing buttons, and it it just doesn't seem like a conflict. Does that make sense? Yeah. So all those factors probably um, combine to make for a disconnect. There are other factors too, but those are three I can think of. Okay. Um, do you think there's a pattern in America's involvement in wars? Yes, definitely recently. The way I take it, you know, why we are getting involved and then what are our goals. And I think the pattern has been to sell these interventions primarily along sort of humanitarian lines, right? Or some sort of democratic element. Even our invasion of, of Iraq in 2003 was sold on, of course, Counterterrorism. Saddam Hussein has WMDs. He worked with terrorists, but there was another reason that he's illegitimate. He's a dictator, and the Iraqi people should have freedom. So I think there there's, tends to be that element of either protecting societies, like in the Libya war, or in the Iraq war, bringing liberty and democracy. All good things, by the way. But th there is that element that's being sold. So that's a commonality. So we're not necessarily getting into conflicts because it, it, it threatens our national security. Our leaders may say it threatens our national security, but that, that's debatable about to what extent.
but there's always that moral element as well. The other pattern is that these conflicts quickly turn into nation building. Meaning, we're not just going to depose a government, uh, fight a military, or some ter- hunt down a terrorist organization. We get involved in decisions about how to reshape economies, set up new constitutions. We, we did that in Afghanistan. We did that in Iraq. We've done that in Kosovo. Right, we didn't do it in Libya, but we might, we probably should have. But there's that element of that these military interventions end up being much thornier, much sort of a whole of society transformations, and it's like we bite off more than we can chew. Did America's involvement in Afghanistan and Vietnam affect how the American people view war? Yeah, for sure, for sure. I, I don't know if there's a difference between. And I haven't thought about, is there a difference in perception with, in Vietnam and, and Afghanistan? I haven't thought that through. I do know that both conflicts affect the way uh, the American people look at military, use of military power and engagement. Vietnam was a hugely traumatic event to the American public. People protested. It divided societies, divided families. Families that served wanted to be proud of their service, some of them, and some of them like threw away their medals. So like, it, it was incredibly disruptive war, and politicians didn't want to go through that, and the public at large didn't want to go through that experience again. Afghanistan is different in that there's not there wasn't this big tension uh, in within the U.S. about what America was doing in Afghanistan. For the most part. Americans agreed on the rationale. Um, but the human cost, I think, is what caused some, some tensions. And it may arise since withdrawing in Afghanistan since August and the fact that the Taliban are back in power. There may be questions coming about why exactly did we get involved, right? So the overall purpose, I think, now can be questioned or will be questioned about what exactly did we do for 20 years? What did we accomplish? Do you think Americans' perception of war will change in future generations, especially with the current outbreak in Ukraine? I don't know. I do know perception of war will change, given enough time. I think the state of military innovation and technology and technological transformation as wars go into uh, use robots more, the, the nature of warfare changes, cyber wars, or the cyber attacks, the key element of warfare, digital warfare, uh, warfare in outer space, right, the militarization of space, all that's going to change the way Americans think about warfare. I don't know how it's going to change, but it is going to change. With Ukraine, I think the change is, is sort of back to the way wars were originally conceived, meaning less about peacekeeping operations and more like there are countries that will invade the territory, the sovereign territory of another country. Full-on aggression, right? Something back that you saw back in the 1930s uh, or even prior to that. And so I think though that's probably going to be the, the change in attitude in the near term in that it's a rougher world. Countries... Um, can't take for granted that the international system will will do the sort of the basic job of maintaining and protecting their territorial sovereignty, right? 
and so that I think that's what's going to be uh, over the next ten years will be in the American public's mind. How do you think the ideas of justice and freedom have affected Americans' involvement in war? Could you repeat that again? That's a very big question. <laughs> How do you think the ideas of justice and freedom have affected America's involvement in war? Well, as I mentioned, the sort of the moralism, I'll just circle back to that. That is, U.S. has always had that element. Uh, take the Spanish-American War, 1898. The USS Maine uh, blew up or exploded in the Bay of, of Havana in Cuba. That war was partly sold to, as, as a campaign to free the Cuban people from the oppression of the Spanish Empire. That was using concentration camps and another, a, a number of other things against the population of Cuba. The element of fighting for democracy, spreading human rights, it's been in a, an American reflex when it comes to wars for a long time. I think that's why you see it sold. Some interventions, military campaigns, are sold with a democratic human rights element, which could be justified. In other cases, probably not justified, a very weak justification. Justice, I think what's going to happen there is with the development of new ideas of sort of protection of human rights, of countering genocide, right? Mass atrocities, using American military power to prevent those things or stop those things from happening. The concept of a more universal justice that applies to people outside of the U.S., that could take hold in the American public and you would see more, uh, greater use of military force to stop atrocities and mass slaughters. It's not happening happen consistently. It's not happening right now, right? The U.S., for example, is not trying to stop what's going on in the Ukraine war with military power. But in the future, if, the, if this concept of responsibility to protect, which is an element of justice, really takes hold amongst the American public, you would see a more engaged U.S. military in, in sort of civil wars, ethnic disputes. That could happen. I'm not predicting it will, but it could. Why do you think there is such a need for justice currently? Oh, my gosh. In the context of war? Yes. I'm going to push back on your question, because currently, I, I think that's... I don't know what has changed within the last five years in the conception of justice's role with war. I don't think there have been major changes. But justice is an important element of conflict going into the war, during the war, and after the war. And, and it varies. So before the war, the, the reasons to get into uh, conflict in the American public side, it needs to be just. Right? It can't be just nationalistic, right? There has to be some, uh, or some violation of international norms, laws, ethics, in order to compel the U.S. to get involved, like a violation of territorial rights. During the war, the conduct of forces uh, during the conflict matters as well, right? Mass atrocities, murders, rape, any, uh, you know, uh, targeting civilians, um, sort of crimes, war crimes. 
I think the American public doesn't want American forces to do that, and they also don't want other forces to do that. So there's a little bit of that element of torturing, use of torture on captured prisoners. So there are ways to fight the war that are seen as more just than unjust. After the war, it's important for maintaining the peace. There has to have a semblance of agreed parties, victims, being able to, to confront their oppressors or people that committed atrocities. And that can be done in, through the ICC, the International Court of Justice, a UN tribunal. It can be done at a national level, uh, you know, a reconciliation process, something akin to, say, South Africa or Rwanda, for example, the truth and reconciliation processes. But that justice element is important after the conflict to maintain the peace. Because if the war stops, the fighting stops, and there's no process in which societies can actually go through the healing process and announce their grievances and the, the terrible things that have happened to them and seek some redress, whether it's just making the rec public record, financial redress, you know, people that committed the atrocities going to jail, actual, you know, justice. I don't think, I don't think the, actual, the, the consequences uh, of demanding that redress matter as much. It's, it's the fact there's a process for it. Does that make sense? So justice is a concept very much involved in war at the beginning of the war, the start of it, how it's prosecuted during the war, and then how you finalize the conflict and, and maintain a longer peace. Do you think that there's a strong desire for peace in the younger generations? If you turn that, is there a less of a desire for peace in the older generation? And I, I'm pushing back on your question because I, I frankly think, I don't know if age makes a difference. Um, and, and frankly, sometimes the younger generations more can be more enthusiastic about going off to fight, right? Can be than the older generations. But I that that's a that's a question I just I don't think I can answer because the way it's framed, I, I don't even I didn't know how to conceive it. I I can't. I don't think I compare. I can't compare whether people, the youth of the 1960s and the youth of the 1990s and the youth of the 2020s have different, you know, feelings about peace. You know, and all those generations grew up with conflict. And is the current generation more peaceful than the youth generation than in the 60s? I don't know. It's hard to know. Will there be a significant change in President Biden's approval ratings if America gets involved in Ukraine? The Biden administration's response to the, U the war in Ukraine and the Russian invasion of Ukraine definitely going to have a political element to it. And it may be negative. It may be positive. We don't know yet. Right now, I think the Biden administration has done a pretty good job of getting out in front of this crisis and this war. They've done a good job of working with partners, particularly in NATO, on um, coming up with a response, working with world partners on sanctions, regimes, etc. And I think that probably boosts the president's popularity. However, if the war goes on 
and more atrocities like we saw today of a, of a children's hospital being bombed, if that happens again and again and again and tens of thousands of civilians are killed and the calls amongst the American people to get, are, to get involved are so loud and if Biden doesn't respond, his popularity is going to go down. Or vice versa. If we do institute a no-fly zone through NATO and that spills over into a wider conflict with Russia, you might see Biden's popularity go down. You don't, there's going to be an impact I think what he's doing right now has helped him politically in the eyes of voters. But a month from now, six months from now, there's no telling if it's going to be positive or negative. It all depends on how things play out. If the war ends tomorrow, then it probably will be you know, a plus sign for the Biden administration. If the war goes on for six months, probably a negative. How does capitalism impact war? Another giant question. Oh my gosh. Why do you ask such big <laughs> questions? I don't think capitalism is necessarily a more of a trigger for conflict than say other form economic forms, which is communism or extreme socialism or you know Marxist Leninism or what you know, it, other economic systems in the world that exist. I I don't think it's Competing economic concerns can definitely lead to conflict. The scramble for resources, in our time, oil, can contribute to conflict. But in general, markets, capitalist markets, stock markets, don't like conflict. They like, they like certainty. They hate uncertainty, right? Yes. Sure, some people are profiting right now from the spike in oil as a result of of the war in Ukraine and the sanctions on the Russian oil industry, right? If you owned oil stocks before the this conflict, your stocks have risen, right? And that's a benefit, but there's a lot. The volatility in the stock market is usually not a very good thing for the overall sort of capitalist view. The fact that the Russian government might default on its bonds, which is a possibility now, that is not good for international markets. So I think in general, capitalism doesn't really like the uncertainty of war and the conflict and the, the second and third level unintended consequences, right? Meaning this war is going to have a negative impact on the price of food. There may actually be riots in other countries because of this. Popular protests, political uncertainty, tensions, etc. So, big question. I gave you a long answer. It's a completely, it's incomplete answer. I mean, I could go on and on about it, right? So, some actors in a capitalist system probably like a conflict. I'd say the market overall doesn't, doesn't like war or conflict particularly on a large scale. This is the last question. Sure. Do you think NATO and other modern-day alliances have created more peace or just new avenues for conflict? I, I think I think NATO is overall a force for peace, has added to peace in the world since its inception. It doesn't mean it hasn't been a party to conflict and tensions. I'm saying if you look at the history of NATO since 1949, 
and that modern military alliance. It, the way it operated in the Cold War and after the Cold War, it has probably created more peace than had it not existed. It's hard to prove that counterfactual, but it has, number one, it has definitely brought peace within Europe, right? NATO definitely acted for a force for peace in the Balkans, particularly in Bosnia. Kosovo is a little bit more questionable about whether or not they actually created peace. Macedonia, for sure. NATO was involved in stopping some of the ethnic conflict there. I think NATO's role in sort of peace building in Iraq and Afghanistan, although in Afghanistan now, that in light of what happened, it looks like the whole campaign might have been a failure. But during that time, I think NATO probably did some very good work in Iraq and Afghanistan. Okay. So, and now if you look at sort of Eastern allies, the Baltics, Poland, Romania, it is far better that those countries are in NATO and have the mutual assurance protections that NATO provides in confronting a very hostile Russia. If the Baltic states were not in, in NATO right now, right they, they would, for sure, would have fallen under the sway of Russia, right? And the demands of sort of the regional sort of sphere of influence. So I think, I think NATO, if you look at it that way, has definitely contributed to peace. Um, a force for peace. Issues of conflict and tensions amongst nations and also between non-state actors and state actors have become more complex as societies become more complex and with, with the internet and globalization and how easy it is to, to use violence, right? It's become much cheaper to do that. Drones, you can go on and on and on. So as... Conflict is have new avenues of conflict and more of a societal, whole, comprehensive view of conflict. I don't think NATO's causing that, right? I think it's just a part of a trend. And you can see NATO responding to that by getting into energy security questions, uh, defense of cyber realm, defense of outer space assets, particularly satellites. You know, NATO even and not just NATO, but Western militaries are in sort of climate change, right? They have, they have policies to lower the amount of fossil fuels that they use and climate uh, emitting uh, emissions. I didn't say that right, but... So you, you see NATO getting into, and alliances getting into more things than just traditional conflict, mm. right? And, and, and trying to figure out a way to, to lessen tensions in other fields outside of military to military conflict. And I think that's just a trend, whether it's the EU, whether it's the United States military, it's NATO, it's just following the changing nature of conflict. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. Long answer. You ask these very, very broad questions that are just, it take a seminar to go over this stuff. It's just, this topic is just so broad that Narrowing it down is just so exactly. difficult. And yeah. Well, this concludes our interview. Um, on behalf of the Clark Forum, thank you again for sitting down of and having an interview with me.